week of December 11th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox episode 601, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, making news around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Rice. And on Pandora, I'm Michael Giltz. Wow, you're already there. I'm, I am That's immersed in Pandora. Just as we come on the air, we're recording on a Tuesday because Sperling flew back from the Middle East where he was attending the Red Sea Film Festival. We are getting the reviews for Avatar The Way of Water. And they are ecstatic. Oh, that's the Pandora you're talking about. I thought you were talking about that you're living in a, in, in a music streaming service. Oh, isn't it called Pandora? Did I get the, yes. did I get the is it the same name? Yes, Pandora. Uh, all right, yes. but is the, so they figured out their copyright snafus. All right. Yes, I'm on the planet of Pandora, James Cameron's world within a world. And the reviews are in, and the movie is spectacular. It's amazing. The special effects are stunning. The drama is non-existent, but it won't matter, just like the first movie. So the, the <laughs> trades are like, no, it's going to work. It's going to work. Don't worry about it. I remember when I first saw the first, uh, they showed 15 minutes of the first Avatar, at Cine Expo in Amsterdam in 2009. Of course, that's the, the European trade show for movie theater operators. And they show this movie. Uh, and actually, we did a Showbiz Sandbox there. If we go back to one of the earliest Ooh. episodes of Showbiz Sandbox, uh, we talked about this when I was there. Uh, they showed it, and I'm pretty sure I said the same thing then, that the lights come up after the 15 minutes. I'm seated between two big movie theater operators. And I was... Fully expecting them to go, what the hell was that? There was like nothing going on in that footage. And they were like, oh my God, did you see that? That was amazing. <laughs> it's going to do a lot. I was like, what are you, amazing? Where's the story? There was no, sto- there's, there's no story here. And and I thought, this movie's not going to do that well. <laughs> it's got no story. And I was wrong. Yeah, there you go. Well, I also could have said I was in the kingdom of books which is a, a, a website oh. I once uh, copyrighted. There, there is a Kingdom of Books bookstore in the UK, but they only had the UK website uh, uh, held down. Anyway, um, I did just do a big book list, the 222 best books of all time for Parade Magazine. There's a link in our show notes, books from every possible genre, picture books, sci-fi, romance, uh, westerns, fiction, you name it. It's all there, all you know, fictional works, including some poetry. Uh, it was a massive undertaking. I've got like... Three dozen authors who chipped in their favorite books of all time, like George R. R. Martin talked about The Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. So it was really fun to you do. You talked to George R. R. Martin? I did not talk to him, but he, he sent a unique new appreciation. He, they reached out to me and knew I was doing the list. I said, oh, you want George R. R. Martin to, to talk about? I'm like, sure. I said, I will risk the wrath of Game of Thrones fans to have him pause for a moment from writing and give us that. So he wrote a little something on The Lord of the Rings. So that was very exciting. And believe me, Parade was excited too. So that was one of the last things. Well, no, it's one of the first things to run in Parade since the print edition shut down. It's now just website only, but they reach like 20 million people a month, unique visitors. So that's cool. It was a lot of work and it's not a list that was thrown together slowly or I mean, you know, casually. I put a lot of effort into it, spoke to dozens of authors, reached out to bookstores all over the country for their recommendations. And then wrote a lot. So it was a, it was a lot of work. I'm pretty proud of it. It's not all books I would choose. You know, other people chose a fair number of them, though I got my quirky picks in there as well. But I'm, I'm generally proud of how it's written and how it reads. So if you're interested at all, looking for a gift guide or just want to look at some great books and get some ideas of what to read next, check it out. But one thing I figured out while I was doing it 
was they have a system at Parade that automatically links to Amazon so they can offer a link and maybe get a little money if you click on it and buy that book from Amazon. But it always uh, defaults to the latest edition of a book. So a book comes out in hardcover, it would link to that. Then when it comes out in paperback, it links to that. That's how it's supposed to work. But Amazon is littered with an unbelievable amount of self-published editions of public domain classics. It's all automated now. So it used to be if you went on there, you could find an edition of, you know, any Tom Sawyer or whatever, and there it would be. Now, if the book's in public domain, there's all these 10,000 companies who put out a new edition every month automated. Like November of 2021, they put out an edition of, you know, Tom Sawyer. Really? Uh, October, July, they did it then as well. They're just so. So it's just it's it's on a Kindle for for Kindle because they can't print all those books, can they? No, these are not print editions. These are well, actually, they do have yeah, print okay. editions available because they can just self okay. they can self publish and print it out and slap together a crappy edition for you. So yes, so when I'm looking at it, it's not just eBooks; it's also print editions. The latest crappy print edition of some of these books are from these self published companies. And I'll look at like My Antonia by Willa Cather. It's like 300 plus pages long. The edition they're selling is 90 pages long. But that's not the sort of thing you're going to notice. It looks legitimate. Sometimes they steal covers from legitimate editions like Oof. Penguin. So you glance at the cover, you think, oh, it's a Penguin classic. And you're buying actually a slapped together self-published version that some nobody has done because they can hopefully trick you into clicking on their link and buying it from them because it's going to be at the top of the list. This was a huge problem when I'm on there trying to find a decent legitimate copy to link to. It sometimes took me five, eight minutes to sort through all the crap and find an actual legitimate edition. Obviously, Amazon doesn't care because they could easily default no. to they- a legitimate publisher, you know, avoid all self-published publishers. You know, when it's a book that already exists in a, in a by a publishing company, you don't need to show up a self-published edition. They could just revert to like, all right, if there's a Penguin edition available or uh, whatever, I'm going to default to them. It's just not a problem they care about. It's both in print and eBooks. It's a huge problem because if you're just trying to find something on Amazon that you want to buy, you're going to get a lot of crap that surfaces up before you can find something legitimate. It's only to do with stuff that's been around for like 100 years. But you know what? That becomes more and more books every day. You know, we're looking at the 20s and 30s. We should really make sure that our podcast isn't being uh, duplicated since we've been around for 100 years. I'm sure it has. Every article I've ever written, the second it publishes, just like this 222 best books of all time, is immediately copied and automated and slapped on a million other websites. They do it to try and get traffic. That's been happening to us at Celluloid. It happens to everyone everywhere. It's just automated and And they just do it all the time. It's a pain. It's a total nightmare. And you know what? That means the more they do that, the less content they need from real writers. And that's why we're seeing layoffs everywhere. CNN, AMC, uh, Warner Brothers, Discovery, BuzzFeed, CBS, Paramount, on and on and on. Everybody has been announcing ways of layoffs. Headline news? They're not going to do headline news anymore. (laughs) They're basically ceasing their live programming and switching to a true crime slate. So Nancy Grace is happy, but everybody else is in trouble. So a lot of layoffs going off in the entertainment business, in the publishing business, in the media business, and it's only going to get worse. So happy holidays. <laughs> Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. You're fine. Happy Hanukkah. Um, so that's what's been going on while Sperling's been away for two weeks. Did you have a great uh, trip over to the Middle East? We'll discuss the festival in a minute. Uh, it was a very uh, interesting trip, yes. Right. It, you know, it, it's it's... It's a different place. It sure is. Will, will there be an episode next week? Yes. 
All right, so that's we're looking at the 19th of December. What about the day after Christmas or the December 27th? Are you traveling or will there be an episode in two weeks, do you think? Or is that too far in advance to talk? It's too far in advance to talk. And also, uh, that's another way of my saying, oh, I should have actually um, figured out what I am doing for the holidays. That probably would have helped. I'm sure your wife will tell you. Because we, we have coming up, people, so pay attention because I'm going to be gone from December 29th through January 13th. I will be in South Africa. Um, so that means the weeks of the January 2nd and 9th, I will be uh, somewhere else. But I should possibly, I'm going to try and be able to do episodes from there. So if Sperling's available, I should be too. But hopefully I won't have any big snafus, but I'm going to try to do it. So we'll figure that all out. You can make sure you talk to us next week. We'll be here. But what are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are sunny and rested after our trip to the Middle East for the Red Sea International Film Festival, uh, as you were just commenting, mm-hmm, Michael. Oh, wait, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I am. Sperling is rested because Michael was stuck back in the United States waiting by the microphone for my return. I told him not to leave. I might come back at any moment. Uh, we'll <laughs> briefly discuss that film festival and what it means for the region and the movie theater operators and exhibitors and frankly, even the distributors in that territory. Then we've got lots of trophies to collect because award season has kicked off in earnest. The National Board of Review, the LA Film Critics, and the Golden Globes are making waves, and we'll cover them all, even though none of them really matter when it comes to the Oscars. Even if we didn't get an award. Yes. And that's good because we don't get any awards. Yeah, I was going to say we've been doing that actually since 2009 and that people keep forgetting to nominate us or give us any prizes or really, yeah. Well, uh, you know, let's face it. The Oscars is the one everybody likes to collect. Uh, True. That's that, but that's award season for you. On Inside Baseball, we'll tackle the latest crisis for movie going. Will adults ever return to the cinema? The latest batch of box office flops say, well, no, no, they're not. They're not coming back, at least according to the New York Times. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office and give us a prediction for next week's box office. Better yet, (laughs) I'll do that. I will do that. Avatar The Way of Water makes a lot of money. There you go. (laughs) Comes in number one. Well, bet the money now. You know, I'm sure the bookies in England will take your bet on whether you know Avatar The Way of Water will be number one around the world. No, you say, sure, you bet $20 and we'll give you 15 if you're right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You just lost $5. <laughs> yes, we're because that's a dumb bet. Nobody would take it. We're looking at box office around the world. In our show notes, we have links to ComScore and we pull info from all sorts of places. And we have two weeks of box office. We have worldwide box office for the week ending December 4th. And then we have the box office for the week ending December 11th. It's been a quiet two weeks as we wait for Avatar The Way of Water theater chains really wish there were other movies trying to counter program or get in the space before and after because you know they need more movies than one film as big as it may be they need more than one movie at a time to fill up those 20 screen megaplexes so the worldwide box office for the week ending december 11th the number one movie is still black panther wakanda forever it made another 35 million dollars it's at 770 million dollars worldwide That makes me think, I don't think there's any big territories left for this movie that it's going to open in. So, you know, they've tripled their budget. They've done great. The first one was a phenomenon, but they're slowing down quite a bit. You know, is Avatar going to blow them out of the water or will they play through the end of the year? I think there aren't enough big new movies, so they should have screens available. And I think there will be an audience for it, but they're certainly going to tap out. It looks like eight fifty nine hundred million dollars. 
something like that. We'll have to see how it holds up once Avatar debuts. But Wakanda Forever has done very well comparing it to the first movie, just like James Cameron says, comparing this Avatar to the last one is kind of a, a tough, you know, that's a tough compare, you know, it's the biggest movie of all time. So hard to compare those two. But Black Panther Wakanda Forever has certainly been a success story. That's the number one movie around the world. And number two is Violent Night, a Christmas horror flick starring David Harbour. That made $22 million this week. It's at $42 million and counting. One of the big successes in art houses, which counters what the New York Times is saying, is The Menu with Ray Fiennes as your chef. And that movie now, cost now you, about... Now, we should point out, the reason you did that is the reason you clapped there is because before every single uh, serving, he would... Make a big clap. It wasn't just... Serving, also known as a course. Course, sorry, yes. That's the word I was looking for, so thank you for pointing out that I did not find that word. <laughs> so this movie has made $60 million worldwide. It made $11 million this week, so it's doing quite well, but it costs $30 million to make. So it's going to need to make $90 million for us to call it a box office hit right out of the gap Hold that thought, because we're going to discuss that again. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Here's one of the big hopes for the holiday box office. It's family programming. It's animated. So it's in sort of the same wheelhouse as Avatar, which is certainly a family-friendly film, but it's got a nice, you know, backstory, lots of successful Shrek movies, very good reviews. Antonio Banderas is the Puss in Boots, and it opened to $9 million in limited territory. So that's one that we hope will be a success Unlike Disney's Strange World, which really is proving to be a disaster at the box office, it's falling hard and fast. It made $9 million this week. It's at $53 million worldwide. But three animated films in a row. One has a very promising start. One is a flop. And one One Piece film, Red, is the Japanese anime film. And that is a huge hit. It made another $9 million thanks to opening up in China. And it's at $207 million worldwide. It's funny what gets considered a flop and a hit. Black Adam, when Dwayne Johnson had his biggest opening ever in North America, people kind of think it's a profitable film. You know, it's sort of a hit, but it's not really. It made $5 million this week. It's slowing down hard. It's at $390 million. So it's going to double its box office budget of $200 million, but it's certainly not going to quadruple it. And there's been a big debate. One story came out saying this movie is going to lose $100 million or more. Other people said, no, wait, that's ridiculous. And what they're talking about is what will it make over the course of its lifetime? When we talk about a movie being a hit right out of the gate, we're talking about is it a clear financial success from box office alone? That doesn't mean that if the menu doesn't hit $90 million, it should be considered a flop. It just means, okay, it didn't triple its budget. And based on all sorts of factors and a rough accounting, that's our sort of gold standard for clearly this movie has made money. All other things being normal, a normal you know, print and advertising budget, a normal back-end uh, participation and all that sort of stuff. If a movie triples its reported budget that we think is a reasonable guess, then we say, yes, that movie is a hit. But if it doesn't do that, like Black Adam, that doesn't mean it's losing money for the studio that made it, in this case, Warner Brothers. In this case, of course, it's got Dwayne Johnson. It's a big name. It's a, it's a, it's a comic book movie with a strong, you know, a strong back history. A lot of people are going to want to watch it at home and on DVD and Blu-ray and rental and whatever service it's streaming on. So this movie is not clearly a flop. 
Will it be profitable? Some people argued, and we have links in our show notes. Oh, it'll make about $50 million when all is said and done because of what they predict it will make selling it to cable, selling it to satellites, selling it on, on demand, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, but story, it wasn't a big enough hit that you want to make like three more movies. It's, you know. I, I, right, exactly. Do you want to have Black? Well, and of course, they're rejiggering the whole DC universe with uh, 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 all the James Gunn and his partner on that are all looking at the DC universe. They're making big plans for how they're going to reconfigure the whole thing. We're going to get more news about that down the road. So whether Black Adam is a part of that, I don't know, but they like Dwayne Johnson. They want to keep him happy. But when you're looking at these movies and talking about whether they're hits, just because they don't make it right out of the gate at the box office, there are lots of reasons why you can look at movies and say, this one's going to be okay. In the case you know of what? Strange... Look at, look at the, maybe the best example of that is The Greatest Showman. Came out, everybody thought, oh, too bad, Hugh, man. You know, maybe next time, maybe next time. Meanwhile, it plays for a year in some places. Well, but no, that's, it was a hit from box office alone, so I'm not sure that's a counter example. No, no, if no, meaning w- the first, the, the opening weekend, when everybody went, well, oh, yes. it's, well, it's, when people jump on opening weekend, we don't do that at all. We always say, you got to wait to see how it holds out. You know, of course, yeah, we're we're big fans of looking at the worldwide box office and the final total box office rather than making first weekend predictions, no matter what Avatar The Way of Water opens to. You know, it's going to be okay. But you know, if the second weekend it drops 70%, so what? It'll make so much money that first weekend, it probably will drop by a huge amount in its second weekend. And that will not mean cause for alarm. Wait to see where it ends up. The Greatest Showman, by the way, cost about $85 million to make, and it grossed $435 million worldwide. That's like five times its budget. So that was a clear winner for all involved, and they'll probably turn it into a stage musical. That's the next step for that movie. So moving down on the charts, we have The Night Owl, a South Korean film that opened up last week. That's at $17 million total. Matilda, the musical, that along with Glass Onion were two Netflix movies opening up in theaters. Glass Onion opened up limited around the world. Matilda opened up basically in the UK and Ireland only for complicated rights reasons. But this movie's made $13 million so far. It's doing very well for Sony in the UK, and given the size of that market, it's gotten great word of mouth, greater reviews, and the idea that that's going to hurt it when it debuts on Netflix seems silly. So maybe that's another example of Netflix saying, why are we leaving this money on the table, though that's not the game they're playing. One movie that probably won't be a success story, even when all is said and done, is Devotion, a Korean war film that's got good audience numbers. It's inspirational about the friendship between a black and white pilot during the Korean War. It costs $90 million to make. It opened up very poorly in the United States. It's making $3 million this week. It's at $18 million total. It's not getting anywhere near that $90 million, even from North America alone. And it's not a movie that's going to travel well. So that movie is probably a flop. Uh, and we're looking at where it's trended the second and third weekend and how it's going to play overseas based on the type of film it is. You know, it's not going to be a winner, unfortunately. Lyle Lyle Crocodile is a family film. That's at about $90 million worldwide. Spielberg is hoping for a hit. The Fablemans is chugging along in limited release. It's at $7 million this week. It made $2 million over the last seven days. Uh, it's hoping for lots of love from the, from the uh, Oscar season, and it's starting to get that, and they're hoping they can expand wider and get momentum from that. I think it's getting good audience numbers, so maybe they'll pull it off, but I imagine it's going to be on the modest end of Spielberg's movies. Bones and All is the horror flick. That's at $13 million total. Horror flick, it's the cannibalism flick. Well, that's, isn't that a horror movie? 
I don't know whether it's a horror movie, but I will say people eat people. People, people, yes. people who eat people. <laughs> well, that, yes. that counts as a horror to me. Um, I saw it's by director Luca Guadagnino and stars Timothy Chalamet. Uh, I was not sold on it. I'm afraid I can't recommend it. I have not seen She Said yet. That's another. Ad- Wait, have you seen the movie? Have you seen the movie? I saw it. Yes. And I said I was not. I, oh, I did not like it. That's why you can say it's a horror movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's well, cannibalism okay. generally would count as a horror movie. Maybe a horror comedy if that's funny, you know. But uh, yeah, no, it's a not. I'm afraid a successful film. Uh, the numbers commercially are not good for. She said that's the drama about the New York Times and the Me Too era and the uncovering of Harvey Weinstein's horrible predations. That stars Carey Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. It only costs about thirty million dollars to make, but it's fading fast at the box office. Oscar love is not going to rescue this one, I don't think. It's at ten million dollars total. And it seems mostly played out, at least here in North America. But you never know. Maybe they can turn it around. So that's the worldwide box office. Um, uh, Some sad news. I have friends who are in Connecticut a lot. And another cinema has shut down. Every time a a small cinema closes, a little piece of your heart goes too. Because it's probably in an area where there's no big chain that's going to ever be able to open up. I'm talking about Niantic Cinema in Niantic, Connecticut. It's closing after seven decades. It began as a one-screen palace. It was converted to three screens in 1981, so 40 years ago. It opened in 1981 with it, after its remodeling with Kramer versus Kramer, Coal Miner's Daughter, and Being There. That's a good trio of movies, and it was an anchor for downtown. Everybody's sad that it's closing. It's been a great new draw for downtown in Niantic, Connecticut. And the owners say, you know what? It's streaming. That's the main way people see movies now. You know, and I don't know. I've empathized with them. I feel sorry for them. I can see how they feel that way after they survived through the pandemic and then now they still have to shut down. But you know what? People have been able to see movies in their homes for decades now. People said nobody would go to movies because they can watch them on VHS. They can watch them and rent them on DVD. They can watch them on cable. They come to HBO. uh, They can buy them on demand. So I just don't think streaming is that dramatic a change. Do you? I don't know that it, it is a dramatic change. But I will tell you, uh, when I was in Finland this summer, I, I talked with Tero Koistinen, mm-hmm. is his name. Uh, and he is the head of the Chamber of Films, uh, and he oversees both distribution and exhibition uh, in Finland. And he went through some history, and there was this period in the 1980s where all of these local cinemas closed down because of VHS. People were staying inside mm-hmm. and and not going to the movie theater, but watching movies on on. Uh, on VHS, on videotape. However, along comes a bunch of theater operators who said, you know, if we get together, we can all like, we can take over all of these cinemas and we can create a big chain, a big movie theater chain. And that chain became Finn Kino, which is now part of Odeon, which is a part of AMC. Uh, So those theaters did survive. They just didn't survive under their current ownership. uh, And it probably took 10 years to revive them. I think streaming is a part of it. I don't think it's the entire. I don't think it's the whole story. Well, when you look, yes, it's just hard for small independent screen operators to survive. It always has been. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and if you look at the era of VHS when they exploded, at one point during the DVD Blu-ray era, studios were making more money in North America from rental and sales of Blu-ray and DVD than they were at the box office. But what didn't happen was that box office took a big hit. Box office continued to grow in a steady space despite studios making all this extra money they never made before by renting and selling movies on VHS and Blu-ray and DVD. So I don't think 
that availability in the home is the culprit here, though we're going to talk a lot more about that when we get to our inside baseball story. But for the last two weeks, Sperling, you had a big trip overseas. You went to the Middle East and attended the Red Sea Film Festival. This is the second year, I think? It's the second year of the Red Sea International Film Festival. Yes. Last year, of course, it was held during a pandemic year, and this year is the first year. Well, I guess we're still in a pandemic, but uh, it's quieted down a bit. So you, you headed out there, you met with some local ex- exhibitor chains like Alula and Niam. Well, no, Alula uh, and Niam are, are, are regions within, within Saudi Arabia where... Oh, I thought they were the names of the chains. Uh, no, that is... Uh, so the names of the chains that I met with are Vox Cinemas, which is based in the UAE, and they have theaters all over the, the Middle East. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Movie, M-U-V-I, uh, which started just, you know... Four years ago, three to four years ago, and they're already one of the biggest theater chains in the in Saudi Arabia. They're only based in Saudi. Did you tell them they're spelling it wrong? I was going to, but then I realized they probably <laughs> needed a domain name and probably couldn't afford movies. <laughs> movies was not available. Yeah, exactly. So I think we talked a lot about this before the festival and before uh, the show. And it sounds like for you, the biggest impression of seeing movies and a lot of these are movies being made in Saudi Arabia where they have never really made many movies before, if at all. It's new to have theaters where people can go see a movie in a theater. It's new for them to make movies. This is really a nation nascent both film industry and nascent in terms of just showing movies to the public for the few people that can afford them. And your impression was just like, boy, everything that I saw is a first. Yes. And that's really, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, essentially, uh, yes, there's the politics of it all. I'm going to put that to the side, even though it's, I won't, it's complicated. (laughs) Uh, Not that complicated. (laughs) uh, There's the filmmaking uh, and then there's the the culture of it all, uh, the culture of seeing movies, the culture of making those movies, the culture of telling stories, uh, and it, it's it's new to the it's new in that region. Uh, four years, four or five years ago, there were no movie theaters in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Now they have movie theaters in Saudi Arabia, and they're learning how to make movies. They're trying to get people to make movies in regions such as, as you mentioned, Michael Alula and Neom, which is a city being built out of whole cloth from the ground oh, up. Oh, that one, yes, of course, yeah. Uh, it's qu- I'm familiar with that. Quite think, fascinating. Yeah. And they had a film that was shot in Neom, and these are like you know spec settings within sand was a film by mo alatawi uh which is basically you know about a guy who separates from from a a tribe that he's he's crossing the desert with he says i want to get home faster i'm going this way well he didn't really know where he was going hijinks ensue hijinks in the desert uh but just stunning stunning scenery and when you see these movies you can see flashback to china 20 years ago in other countries where they're a new industry, they're going to bring people in, lure them in with contracts or whatever they can, learn everything they can, and slowly but surely they will get better and better at making movies if they have the money and the commitment. They will eventually start making movies that can be on a world quality level and start exporting them to the world if they find that useful or just keeping their home audiences happy by showing locally homegrown talent. So it's, you know, just like every other country has started off at the bottom, figuring it all out, they'll be sure to get better and better. Yeah, I mean, so they, you know, because the Red Sea International Film Festival came at the end of the year, there were tons of content or content, listen to me, tons of titles from other 
from other festivals. So Triangle of Sadness, sure. Ruben Oslin's Palm Door winner, yeah. uh, Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. There was The Banshees of Inishirin. Uh, there was Broker, which is uh, Corrieda's film from Cannes. Uh, but then there were whole sections of, there was a competition, 16 films in competition. Hanging Gardens uh, won, if I'm not mistaken. I kind of got confused. Hanging Gardens by Ahmed Yassin Aldaraji. He made a film in Iraq about, it takes place partially in a dump. I mean, this was, there were so many flies and so much garbage in this movie, you could smell it. I mean, it was just, uh, but it's about a, a, a boy who finds a, an American sex doll and he puts the sex doll, he's an orphan, he puts the sex doll to good use. Let's just put it that way. And it's remarkable that the film could be made in that, in, in that territory. It's kind of graphic uh, at, at times. Uh, but well, it won't be shown on television. It's not going to be shown on television, <laughs> no. Uh, and, you know, th- there were also films by Shakur Kapoor, What's Love Got to Do With It, starring Lily James, which was at TIFF. So uh, another film that I thought uh, worth mentioning, Queens. Now, this will inevitably be compared to Thelma and Louise, but it's about a like a 12-year-old uh, young girl who's a bit of a troublemaker and her mother who's in prison for dealing drugs. Mother breaks out of prison goes and kidna- kidnaps, and I say that in air quotes because it's her kid, kidnaps the, uh, her child, and they go out on the run. And the first thing they do is they hijack, carjack a truck, but it just so happens that the woman that is uh, driving, the, not even driving the truck, happens to be in the truck waiting for the driver to come back, doesn't know how to drive the truck, and she's you know not all that happy with her marriage, and, and the three of them are on the run together in this giant truck, and it was actually really well made. Well, that's interesting. So maybe it'll, do you think it'll travel, that it'll come to other countries and we'll be able to see it? I think that probably will. And, and probably the, the film that sums it up for me, probably the best film to see uh, was Valley Road. This was the last film of the festival. That was the audience award winner, by the way. Valley Road? Oh, I thought it was. Or, or no, was that last year? No, um, I, I don't the, know. The, but the competition winner was Hanging Gardens, uh, okay. for sure. How I Got There was the audience award for best Saudi film. Okay. And Ajuma was the audience award for best film overall. That was from Singapore and South Korea. Okay. Uh, the Valley Road, it's like you can see everything coming together. It was the closing night film, and it had everything. It had drama. It had comedy. It had two musical numbers for some reason. So like a Bollywood movie. They were singing and dancing. It had a martial arts. Like a Bollywood arts, movie. A martial arts like, segment. But what Like really, a Bollywood film. Yeah, I would not want to see this movie at home because if I did, I'd say this is the worst movie ever. It like had no, you know, it was like a bad student movie. But at the same time, seeing it with that audience made it so enjoyable because we were all laughing at the same time. So we knew well, that- But the, with it, now you weren't mocking it, right? No, no, we were laughing with, no, no, it was meant to be a comedy right. moment. Okay. Uh, and so you could see how the language of cinema was translated. Uh, the, the subtitles on this movie were so bad that it was, you know, everything was a first. It's all a first for them. And it's interesting to see something being born out of nothing and to see something that, you know, from, the, from Western eyes 
You know what that's like from a European standpoint or from an American standpoint or from a Latin American standpoint. And you see it being born. It's absolutely fascinating. And you were saying from a cultural point of view, landing in the Middle East, landing in Saudi Arabia, you said you felt like you're on another planet. Yes. <laughs> so you're definitely not in, in Western culture. You're like, this is completely different. Yes. I mean, for instance, they had several gala events and I think everybody ran up to the, uh, to the bar and they got their champagne and tasted it and immediately did spit takes because they're like, what is this? And I said, well, at home, we call that Martinelli's apple cider, <laughs> sparkling apple cider, because there's no alcohol being served at all. Well, of course not. And well, so I understand. That, that was, you know, an adjustment for, for lots of the Western attendees, which, you know. That, yeah. How, how sad. One of the people in the trades was like, well, I found out, you know, maybe it's not so bad waking up without a heavy headache. I'm like, gee, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe it's good for you that you were attending a festival where you didn't have to get trashed every night, you know, not so healthy. But anyway, um, you put aside politics. I won't quite. Now, to clarify, you were not paid to attend this festival. No, I was not paid to attend the festival. Right. Because I have been offered money to attend film festivals in the UAE. And they said, we'll pay your whole way. Come here, whatever. I'm not important enough for them to give me extra cash on top of it but people have said oh we'll pay all your way and put you up and i'm sure it'd be very nice but i've always said no but other people didn't say no they were happy to line their pockets oliver stone guy Ritchie, and all these other people came to the festival loudly defended the saudi government and their human rights records mostly by saying well the u.s isn't so bad either uh it's uh, there's a lot of ugly politics going on here it's complicated it ain't easy but i can pretty safely say i don't think they made the right decisions by and large um, most disappointing for me overall is Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars was paid to show up and give a concert in the middle of the Red Sea Film Festival, to which I always think, really, do you need the money that bad? So, really? so here's, you know, here's just, my experience going to the Red Sea Film Festival. The first night, they say, uh, okay, the, the event starts at six, doors open at six, so I want to make sure I, I'm not late. I don't know what it's like. So I show up at five. You show up at 5.30. I show up at five. <laughs> of course, like at con, you'd be an yeah, hour early. be an so hour early, right? Uh, I'm the only one on the red carpet. I'm like prancing up and down the red carpet, like, take my picture, take my, there's nobody there. Uh, and I wait until 7, 7.30. Finally, they start serving juice, this, this like juice, and the red carpet is taking place. The event is, doors are supposed to close at 7.30. At eight o'clock, they say to me, they turn to people, you can go sit down, you can go sit down, or please go sit down. I'm sitting, seated from like 7.45, to 8.45, mm -hmm. that's when the ceremony starts and the first film Instead is Instead of six, it started almost three hours late. Right, now, then the movie starts and it's what's love got to do with it, the, the, the Shakur Kapoor Not movie. a movie about Tina Turner. No, <laughs> uh, I know, unfortunate title. Uh, that said, uh, as soon as the movie starts, everybody gets up and leaves. Like, not, not, oh, this is a horrible movie, let's go. No, they all just knew, no, it's time to go to the reception now. I'm like, no, it's time to watch the movie. I didn't know this. <laughs> so then the movie ends, and then whoever's left and me are walking out to the festival garden at the Ritz-Carlton, where most of the, the festival headquarters was. And I hear this music playing, and I thought, oh, well, that's a live band. That sounds like a live band. That's how that's that's live music. That's not a DJ. And then I get onto the festival, into the festival garden, and I could see off in the distance the band playing. And I thought, oh, it is a live band. And they're playing a Bruno Mars song. And man, this cover band is good. Man, they got a guy who looks just like Bruno Mars. He looks, he's a, wait, let me get a little closer here. That guy, wait, that, 
is Bruno Mars? And he happened. Now that's to- the same joke Deadline made. Did you feed that to Deadline, or, or did they just happen to make the same joke? You know that what? The covers I actually, banned. ironically, I did talk to the guy from Deadline, and it wouldn't shock me if he then used it. Oh, I didn't read funny. that. Oh, that's fu- that is hilarious. Oh, that's funny. Um, that's funny. I didn't know he. I didn't. That's. I didn't know he used that, uh, but yeah, I did talk to him that night. I said, I had no idea it was him. I had to get closer. And you're standing right on top of him because there's only about a thousand people there. So, right. and, and now the, the final night had 3,000 people, but it, it was pretty remarkable that they had Bruno Mars, and it was a big secret. Nobody knew. Now, Bruno Mars was in Riyadh the day or a day or two before playing at what, what is called Middle Beast, which is like the Coachella, if you will, of... The Middle East, I suppose. Right, which, which is also problematic in my book, but that's a different story. Uh, I re- Speaking of Tina Turner, I remember a profile of Tina Turner when she was breaking out again and having her comeback from with Lo- What's Love Got to Do With It. Right. And they were describing how the single was breaking and now she's recorded the album and she's getting all this acclaim, but she's, she'd been working hard. You know, she was in a, uh, she was, you know, building her career back up and doing everything she could and she had obligations she still had to fulfill even though she was now breaking again and becoming a, a you know, a big act and a big draw. And one of them was playing like a trade show for, you know, a company. They pay you to trot yourself out and perform for their convention goers. It's sort of the junk you do when your career is over. And she's doing this and she's giving her all. And the reporter's describing her, giving her all and giving them the greatest show she can. She's not going to just coast through it. She's Tina Turner. And now, but of course, she's going to be back on top and she won't have to do crap like that again. Sorry for cursing. Uh, she won't have to do junk like that again. And I always remember that. And nowadays it seems like, oh yeah, sure, I'll do that again. What do I care? Sure, I'll, you know, they'll do companies for private parties for billionaires or oil oligarchs in, in Russia. They'll do events for problematic, you know, countries. And it's like, they just, I, I thought that was what you wanted to get away from. You're a big star. You don't need to do that. But anyway, there's one final detail I found interesting. We were talking about Ramadan, like, do they show movies during the day? And no, they don't. They got to wait till after after dark. But that's not such a big deal in a country as hot and humid as the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. Um, tickets are pretty expensive, even at the less expensive uh, theaters. So it's not something real working class people can do regularly. But you were talking about, like, hey, you know, how does it all work? And regular, and they're like, and they told you, well, guess what? Our our most popular showtimes are like three in the morning, three, three, three o'clock, three forty-five. You're like, really? And they're like, yes, three in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that was remarkable to me. I couldn't believe that they. Everything that, starts later. Yeah. It's too hot, and people just don't want to go out. So they they'll have a screening at ten p.m. will be popular, and then one, and then the three a.m. will be their biggest selling movie showtime of the day. Because hey, they've been out all night. They want to see a movie, cap it off before they go home and go to bed. Fascinating. Yeah, and I should mention that they had a souk there. So you know, much like Cannes has the Marche du Film, there's the American film market in November here in the United States. There's the European film market at Berlin in February. Well, they had something called the souk, which was a a market. Netflix was there, uh, you know, looking at projects. This is a market at its very, very. It's it's an it's in its infancy, and it will be fascinating to watch it grow. And, uh, of course, we mentioned who the winners were. The winner for uh, 2022, the Audience Award winner, was... Uh, oh, I went to the wrong one. Oh, no. Um, I went to the wrong page, so I can't read it so easily. What was the big winner? 
Uh, well, Hanging I Gardens, I know one. Yes, the bunch. Golden Easter for Best Feature Film Award was Hanging Gardens. And, uh, and then th- that was the evening where they had the world premiere of Valley Road. Um, so, th- you know, that's a big award winner. And of course, it's award season now here in North America and for the film industry all over the world that turns to Hollywood and the Academy Awards, hoping, hoping beyond hope that their movie will get a big boost. Now, the National Board of Review is first out of the post and thus gets attention even though it really has no industry links as such. Nonetheless, it's composed of film enthusiasts. <laughs> I guess I could be on the National Board of Review. And to be fair, it is the first known organization to put out a 10 best films of the year list way back in 1930, so respect. Uh, they list 11 top films, their top film of the year, and then a top 10 film done alphabetically. And if 10 of those 11 movies made the Academy Awards list, they would be thrilled because they cover all the bases, including Top Gun Maverick, which they named the best film of the year. And seven or eight of these movies are absolutely certain to be on the shortlist come Oscar time. We have After Sun, which I just saw and I think is a terrific movie starring Paul Mescal, Avatar The Way of Water, The Banshees of Inishirin, which just got the most Golden Globe nominations, Everything Everywhere All at Once, big box office hit, Spielberg's The Fablemans, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, the Indian epic RRR, the American drama Till, uh, the Woman King, and then Women Talking. So most of those movies, uh, I would say there's a fair number of arty films, obviously Women Talking and Till, and I guess even The Banshees of Inishirin and After Sun, but you've got five or six really big blockbuster movies that they'd be thrilled. Top Gun Maverick, Avatar, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Glass Onion, uh, and if they had a little international entry with RRR, I think they would be thrilled, don't you? Yes, I think uh, having RRR on the on on the would be, would uh, be the Oscar great. list would be great. Be- yeah, because you know, um, actually, India has not submitted that film for its, its, its internet for its best international film award. Yes, yes. instead they they uh, submitted last film show, which will inevitably be compared to Cinema Paradiso, another film that was at the Red Sea Film Festival, uh, and it's it's an interesting was film. Was it restored? Oh, you mean the last the last film show was there, yes. not, not Cinema Paradiso. Yes. Okay. It's a love the letter AFI to cinema. Their... Last film show, love letter to cinema. Yeah. The AFI had their best films of 2022. You have to be mostly financed by American money. Added to the list are Elvis and Nope and Tar. Uh, so again... They'd love to see Elvis and Nope and Tar, Elvis and Nope in the mix for Best Picture. You know what I find LA interesting? Film Avatar, what? The Way of Water, wasn't shown to people until last week. How did it make all of these lists? Because they showed it to them last week. <laughs> they did them. They showed them to them, and then they and then they voted for them. The LA Film Critics made their picks. Their Best Picture is a tie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. The audience crowd pleaser starring Michelle Yao, who will certainly be up for Best Actress, and Tar, the art house movie starring Kate Blanchett, which who will also probably be up for Best Actress. Um, and then we have the Golden Globes. They announced their nominees, and their big nominee is The Banshees of Inishirin, which got eight nominations, and then Everything Everywhere All at Once with six nominations. And their ten movies, five dramas and five musicals or comedies, are basically, again, movies Oscar would love to see. Avatar, Elvis, The Fablemans, Tar, Top Gun, Maverick, The Banshees, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Glass Onion, uh, Babylon, that new movie that hasn't come out yet from Damien LaChazelle, 
uh, because that's a big movie about Hollywood's history in the 20s, and it, there's every actor in the world is in it. So that's why the Golden Globes nominated it. And the con movie Triangle of Sadness. And they also have a great international batch of movies, All Quiet on the Western Front, Argentina 1985, the Belgian film Close, the Korean film Decision to Leave, and India's RRR. Any of those into the mix for Best Picture, most likely All Quiet or RRR or Decision to Leave, would be great for the Oscars. So does it matter? Do we care who all these people nominated for Best Film? Does it, is this going to influence the Academy Award nomination? I think it influenced the nominations. Probably. Yes. Uh, Influence mm-hmm. the award uh, that it actually, that, you know, wh- what actually wins awards? Maybe. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's all part of the long campaign, you know, long awards campaign that you have to run to win an Academy Award. You can't just show up in March or in whenever the Academy Awards are now, February or March, and just say, hey, you know, my film was so good last year. Remember me? Yeah, give it to me. No, you have to start yeah. in September and you're starting at TIFF or some sometime earlier than that, as, as is seen with uh, everything everywhere all at once. And you are on a long road to get it, that nomination well, it, and then to win it. It's part, of the, it's part of the ad campaign and it's part of the publicity tour, but I don't think it matters in the least in terms of who's going to get nominated. All that you should look at are the trades. Look at the guilds. Look at the PGA. Look at the DGA. Look at SAG. Look at the cinematographers, the editors. Those are the ones that matter. So we're mostly going to ignore these from now on. It's hard not to give them a quick mention. But none of them matter in terms of what's most likely to get nominated for an Oscar. The Globes don't matter at all. But they do have a cool host, Jared Carmichael. Did you watch his special, Jared Carmichael Raphael, on Netflix? No, I have not, and I really have to because uh, you know I actually have seen a couple. Uh, a couple, I've seen some of his work, and I like him. I wasn't familiar with him at all. What has he done? Is it just stand up, or is he acted? Or I mean, I, I I'm not familiar he's with Jared Carmichael. Com- I really stand up comic. I really don't watch stand up much at all. Yeah, so he's not tra- he's not uh, segued into acting on no. sitcoms or movies or anything like that. Okay, yeah, so. He, he has a really fascinating special. It's only 55 minutes long. I don't think it's great, but I think it's good and it's solid. I was very happy I saw it. It's certainly one of the most acclaimed specials of the year. And it's directed by Bo Burnham, friend of the show, of course. <laughs> Not really. And, uh, but he's a real talent and he frames it beautifully. It's shot and edited impeccably. So it, it really was presented with care and love. So it's certainly worth seeing on a technical level. I personally found it interesting and was glad I saw it. So you might enjoy it too but you can stream it can't you yes i believe you i think that is one of the yes you can yes it's on netflix and you can run to our our streaming category if you go to our show notes you'll find two weeks of streaming lists so you can see what the big movies have been and tv shows and stuff for the last few weeks when we talk about streaming dominating people not going to the movies we're gonna have a through line through this show well when you look at the charts you can see they're dominated by miniseries and tv shows movies don't really have as big an impact on streaming as they do, say, at the box office or elsewhere. I I think streaming is dominated by TV shows and stuff with multiple episodes. Now, that may be just because there's more to watch and therefore they rank higher because there's more hours there to do. But I get the impression overall that when people go to streaming, they're thinking of The Crown and that revival of NBC's Manifest and Enola Holmes. Well, that's a movie, actually. or, Or Coco Melon and things like that. I don't think movies are the dominant thing people go to streamers for as such but we can look at the 
Look at the charts for two weeks. You can see Ryan Murphy's miniseries, Dahmer, is a monster hit. It's the third Netflix release to hit 1 billion minutes within 60 days. It joins Squid Game and season four of Stranger Things. Those are the only three to do that for Netflix, and few others have done it as well. Wednesday, a new show spun off from Adam's Family. That is proving a monster hit as well. And the Royals, Harry and Meghan, they had a bigger drop in the UK than the new season of The Crown. Both of them have dropped in the UK, and the new season, or the first three episodes of Harry and Meghan, have scored bigger numbers than the first new, the fifth season, I should say, of The Crown. So they're winning that war in terms of all that. But it's fun to check it all out and You'll, if you look on the list of originals and acquired and movies, you'll see on the originals list a new season of Warrior Nun. And maybe some people can resist a fantasy series about an orphan teen who discovers she is the halo bearer for a secret order of demon honey nuns, but not us. We cannot resist such a show. So now, now you Warrior know one Nun, you're I will not have seeing? to check out. You know one thing you're not seeing? What? Apple. Yeah. You're not seeing Apple. Uh, and Spirited, which is this Will Ferrell uh movie who's the other one ryan reynolds ryan reynolds and will ferrell it's not there because of course apple well that's because there's that's a four-week gap in when we get these stories so this is the most popular stuff a month ago so this is the latest figures we have are for the week of november 7th i thought apple didn't participate in this anyway um the 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 um the uh, hold they, on a they second. Don't, the, they don't the, people who, the people who are covered include Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, and Apple. Oh, okay. So my bad. These are Nielsen reports for North America only. It does not cover people who view stuff on their laptops or their phones or their tablets. It's just through your smart TV, and it's the U.S. only, and it's about a month behind. So the U.K. from Barb has much better numbers, and they ca- capture viewing everywhere, and it only takes two weeks. But in the U.S., we got to wait four weeks, and it's limited. But I thought. Barb but died in the first season of uh, Stranger <laughs> <Anyways>. Things. <laughs> keep going, keep going. Well, it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. This first story surprises me. The off-Broadway phenomenon stomp is closing after just about 29 years at the Orpheum in the Lower East Side. The show is a celebration of percussion with performers making a beautiful noise with trash can lids, glass bottles, and other unlikely instruments. Like Blue Man Group, the Fantastics, it seemed like Stomp would run forever. It was cheap to put on. The show was the star, not the interchangeable actors. I mean, I could have started it. It wouldn't have mattered. And people from all over the world could enjoy the spectacle since there was no dialogue. Not, not much anyway, but just like the Fantastics. Stumps is closing. The main reason, you might be asking? Tourists. They haven't come back yet in force. The Phantom of the Opera enjoyed a burst of attention when it announced a closing date. That's now that film, that film, that show, that musical, Phantom, has the closing has been pushed back two months because of that. But like Stomp, it too will shut down for good. So the Blue Man Group stands alone. Big dealer, big whoop. I don't speak Morse code, so I've got no... That's stop, baby. It's stop. Oh, okay. we, could, we could open up our own edition. Okay. We can do it. Just got to get a little rhythmic and do all that sort of stuff. I thought this show would never close. 
It is a challenge to do. You got to be rhythmic. There's a lot of complicated choreography, so it's not like any schmo could do it. It is a complicated show. Full credit to the actors, but there aren't names involved in the show, and you can find people of talent who can do that show and do it well, and they're not going to be, be able to command top dollars. So it put a lot of people to work, a lot of dancers, a lot of chore- you know, a lot of people in music and dance were able to work through Stomp. It's a shame to see it go, but boy, it had a great long run. Uh, Blue Man Group, then maybe that's next. I don't know. But uh, other shows are closing. Ain't No Mo is closing on Broadway. Did we talk about that two weeks ago? Yes, I believe we did. It was, yeah, it was just about to open up, and I thought, I really liked it when I saw it at the public, but I would not put money into it. I think this is exactly where it belongs, off Broadway. I don't see this as a Broadway show, and sadly, it is already closing. So that's a real shame, though they are fighting it. And uh, the... The creator of the show was very funny. He said, we got an eviction notice from our, our, our theater owners and they're kicking us out December 18th. But luckily, black people are immune to eviction notices. <laughs> so he's like, we're not going to. So that's cool of him to do that. The Tony Awards are moving from Radio City Music Hall to United Palace in Harlem. Oh, okay. I've been to United Palace. They show old movies there. They have events and stuff there. It's a cool, crumbling place, kind of like the Bam Harvey in, uh, in Brooklyn. Um, it's cool, but it has almost half the seats. Oh, that's weird. Like, then. The Radio City Music Hall has 6,000 seats. This has 3,400 seats. They've also been at the Beacon. That has less than 3,000 seats. So it's cool. I'm not quite sure why they're going to United Palace way up in Harlem. It's not exactly Broadway. No. Though it's been, a, I imagine, a vaudeville place at some point, or so it has a theatrical history, no doubt about that. Um, not sure for the reasons why. Maybe it'll be easier because it's not in the heart of Manhattan. It'll certainly be a little farther for people to go, but they're all in their limos anyway. So maybe it'll be easier and it's cool to pump up that neighborhood and it is a beautiful crumbling place. So it's kind of cool to see. And who knows, maybe next year's Tony Awards will have chess because Tim Rice is threatening to bring chess back to Broadway. This is the musical that never works, but will never die. Yes, my gosh, please don't. Uh, It's another bad week, by the way. For publishing, print sales mm-hmm. continue to trend downwards compared to one year ago. Worse, the newspaper USA Today announced another round of layoffs. Do they still have anybody working there, actually? Yep. Uh, its book yep. editor is among the people that are being laid off or fired. In a sign of how newspapers are getting by with a skeleton crew, USA Today is suspending its bestseller list You know, until they find someone new to take over and figure out how it's done. Finally... Book Forum, the rare magazine devoted to, you know, books. Well, it's closing after nearly 30 years. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? I feel like all of these apply to me. I've never published a book, but I'm involved in the book industry. Uh, I wrote for USA Today for their book section specifically, and I tried to launch a magazine once devoted to books. Like, uh, like Entertainment Weekly, but just for books where you'd have, you know, they have sections for movies yeah. and TV and music and so on. I would have sections for mysteries and romance and sci-fi and kids. And, you know, uh, it didn't quite work. Uh, but, uh, you know, I made, a, I made a big push for it for a little while. Um, and I wrote for USA Today and I love their bestseller list. Imagine you fire someone. You're like, oh, wait, I guess we can't do our weather chart. <laughs> We've got nobody else around who knows how to do the weather chart. Or we'll, we'll get back to the sports scores in a week or two. That, it's unbelievable. That's like Twitter. That that's like Twitter. Like they, they fire the yeah. person who. Oh, whoopsie. Oh, wait, we need that guy. Wait, wait, call him up. See what he's doing. <laughs> Yeah, um, And USA Today bestseller list was really innovative at the time. It is a list of the 100 bestselling books of the week, and it includes every book from every genre in every format, I believe, including audiobooks, but don't hold me to that. So if the bestselling 
book of the week is in paperback mass market, that's number one. Number two could be a hardcover from children's books. Number three could be a memoir. Number four could be a trade paperback. Number five could be another hardcover. They mush them all together rather than, so you sell the most copies, you're number one. You sell the second most copies, you're number two. It was very innovative. It's great. And I wish to God they would do it for television. I would love to see a chart for the 100 most popular shows of the week regardless of when they air at 8 a.m., if it's today's show or Good Morning America, and they should be ranked 15th, then they should be ranked 15th. Uh, evening news, afternoon show with uh, uh, Kelly Clarkson, a primetime show, a show on Netflix, I don't care. But I would love to see a chart listing every show from any time, day or night. And if you know Jimmy Fallon is in the top 10, so be it. And it would be really fascinating to be able to compare all those. But USA Today did it for books, and it worked great. And because of that, they're suspending their list. You can check out PW's list, Publisher Weekly's list. We've got a link in our show notes. And they combine from every category, at least. If you look at the New York Times bestseller list, they refuse to include kids' books in their chart because Harry Potter dominated once upon a time and booksellers panicked. They refuse to include books that pop up every year, like a graduation time. Everybody buys Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go. Publishers Weekly doesn't discriminate. If you look at their top 10, you can find kids' books, Colleen Hoover, of course, seasonal titles, a John Grisham thriller, Michelle Obama's memoir. You know, they're all mixed in together. So check it out. It's one minute to midnight and Ticketmaster is feeling the pressure. First, it was pilloried for the meltdown when tickets went on sale for Taylor Swift's Midnight's Tour. Now, Mexico, or is it the Eras Tour? I thought it was the Eras Tour, but oh, you're right. But anyway, you're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, you're right. Now, Mexico is reportedly planning to fine it for another disaster. Bad Bunny, probably the biggest artist in the world right now, since let's face it, BTS is getting their heads shaved for basic training, and we mean that literally. <laughs> They're going to basic training. Um, I just saw his a photo of one of them with his head shaved. Oh wow! Well, after I made that joke, they released the photo. <laughs> it's like I made it happen. <laughs> they might want. They might have a bone to pick with you. Uh, well. Bad Bunny wound up his tour, his world tour in Mexico, but the massive stadium show turned into a nightmare for thousands of fans who had counterfeit tickets. Apparently, the show was oversold and somehow or other tons of people who thought they had legitimate tickets were blocked from entry. It was not pretty. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. Two big snafus, uh, two weeks in a row, practically with two of the biggest artists in the world. That's really going to shine a big spotlight on them. Uh, something needs to change, right? This is ridiculous. I don't understand what happened here. I was confused by the Taylor Swift one. I still don't have a good explanation of how bots could overwhelm it when they couldn't even buy tickets anyway without having a code. And I don't understand how Ticketmaster is being blamed for counterfeit tickets. But there's a line here that says they oversold the show. What do you mean? They oversold the show? You only have 80,000 tickets or whatever for a massive stadium. You're telling me they sold 120,000? That shouldn't happen. That seems insane. And that's not the same as counterfeit. Those are tickets for which there were no seats available. So none of this makes sense to me. Maybe do they fired understand? the guy like Twitter. They fired the guy who does the counting and they said, we don't need you. And, and in the end, uh, you know, they actually did. All I know is Mariah Carey is back at number one with All I Want for Christmas is You, All is Right with the World. Oh, my God. Well, here's the thing. I need a drum roll. Drum roll, please. You're like a drummer today. Uh, and the greatest yeah. film of all time is Gene Dealman. Wait, what? 
Yes, absolutely. Yes, it has a longer title, but yes, director Chantal Ackerman's masterpiece topped the sight and sound poll for 2022, 2022. Now, here's the thing. Every decade, the British Film Institute reaches out to filmmakers, critics, and scholars to ask them for their lists of the best films of all time. It was headline news when Vertigo knocked off perennial champ Citizen Kane after the Orson Welles masterpiece reigned for 40 years. And now... Even bigger, it's an even bigger upset as the austere 201 minute long art house favorite is crowned number one. So the list has gone from Bicycle Thieves to, or it was the Bicycle Thief actually, to Citizen Kane to one decade on top for Vertigo, and now Gene Dealman. In other words, from a movie most people have heard of, Alfred Hitchcock is pretty famous after all, to a movie that will have all but hardcore fans asking, wait, who? Who is that? What? What is that film? You can start watching that film, Gene Dealman, on HBO Max, Criterion, or rent it from pretty much almost anywhere. Just don't start watching it after a long day at work. Trust me. Big deal or big whoop. <laughs> well, first of all, it is Lardi uh, di Bicicletti sometimes known in the United States as the Bicycle Thief, but more properly, probably Bicycle Thieves. Um, so there you go. Just a, But, you know, it's a translation, of course, but I believe it is plural. Um, but uh, what do you think? I was thrilled. Well, there was a lot of controversy over this because they do Not this in my world. once in every 10... Well, I, I just... I happened to be at uh, the Red Sea International Film Festival when this was happening, so... All of the film critics that were there were bantering back and forth, some of whom were asked to participate in this, others who weren't. Uh, And they opened it up to, it used to be like, you know, 100 well-known or 500 well-known critics from around the world. Now it's like, you know, 2,000 people, 1,500 people. They're up to 1,300. They've expanded the numbers of people. They ask more, they get more people from around the world, more women, more, they've like the Academy Awards and others, they have diversified and reached out to a broader audience. So it's not the same 500 academics who know each other. That's true, yes. And there was a lot of campaigning for Gene Dealman. And so it felt like, in what way? Oh, just a lot there's, of... There's like, no money involved. There's no money know, involved. Nobody's running ads. That's the thing. So the, I don't know what you mean by campaigning. It's considered one of the great films of all time. So if people said, hey, I'm voting for it. I do that my, every year. My, my little awards group. Believe me, there's campaigning every year at the New York Film Critics Circle and the LA Film Critics Circle. People say, I love this movie. And they're like, well, I, I don't like the movie, but I love this movie. Like, you know, horse trading and campaigning is, is always taking place at every poll and every, everything like this. So that's no different than 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. It's just a wider group of people doing the voting. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the, the, uh, the, the big... Have you seen it? Do you like it? I saw it so long ago. I just remember being somewhat bored by it. So ah, shame. It's one. It's it's a it's it's certainly a slow movie. It's 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 remarkable. It's good to be trapped in a movie theater to see it. Maybe if you had to see it for film school and you weren't in the mood, it's not the right time to. Yeah, that's, you know, I think you can you can be won over by Rear Window if you're not in the mood, but you can't be won over by a three hour and twenty minute quiet somber drama that's very slow going. You know, so if you're not ready to see Shoah, you ain't gonna like it. But it's one of the great films of all time. She's a great and important filmmaker. I was excited. The the list has a big shakeup in artists. Um, somebody, I had a friend who complains, ah, you're only allowed to give 10 movies and the idea anyone would put that movie as the 10 best of all time is ridiculous. I'm like, well, it would be on my list. And that, <laughs> yeah, that's so really, sorry. I think, what the controversy was, was like, really? That's one of the top, your top 10 movies. I, it, would be on, it would be on my list of the 10 best films of all time. Absolutely. Okay. 
And again, yeah, absolutely. I'm not including. Uh, but again, I think someone says, well, it should, maybe it'd be number 15, but it shouldn't be 10. Well, maybe for you. And he also said he was a, he was angry that Mulholland Drive. That's ridiculous. I'm like, well, I actually am not that big a fan of Mulholland Drive as others. But I know a lot of people in a certain generation are crazy about the movie and think it is one of the best films of all time. True. So when you're doing a poll and you're submitting your 10 best movies, there is, of course, strategizing. You can say, well, my favorite film of all time is the 1912 silent film classic that nobody's heard of or seen in 50 years, but I'm going to include it anyway because that is my favorite film of all time. That's the most important film. And you can put that at number one, knowing nobody else is going to vote for it. Or you can be strategic and say, all right, I love Citizen Kane, but I don't need to see it on top again. I like Vertigo, but I actually don't. I prefer Rear Window or five or six other Hitchcock movies ahead of it. So maybe I won't vote for any Hitchcock. And I'm going to say, okay, I would love to see Jean Dillman in the top 10. Each movie on your list only gets one point. So it doesn't matter what order you put them in. But will I include Jean Dillman? Sure, absolutely, because I love it. We should have more female directors on the list. It's absolutely, I'd be thrilled to see it in the top 10 or number one. So I will legitimately, but I will say, okay, maybe I won't include Citizen Kane because you know what? I feel like so many other people are going to vote for it. Why bother? I might as well try to get in one of my movies that I love. So yeah, you can stretch strategize, but I'm not including movies I think are unworthy. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because nobody's going to see any of these movies in movie theaters anymore at all, ever. Well, that's not true. They're at the plane at the BFI. Um, and you can watch Jean Dillman and enjoy it tremendously in your home. Um, and guess what? Two of the movies in the Mulholland Drive is number eight, and Blue Velvet is, I think, 84, 85 on the list. So there are two David Lynch films, and uh, that brings us to the, we're not skipping over Inside Baseball, but uh, Angelo Badalamente, the great composer, died. Lifelong association, of course, with David Lynch. They worked together really, really well. And, uh, you know, it's just cool to see. He had, just as he dies, he got to see two of his movies on the top 100 list of the greatest films of all time. Maybe that's, so that's what killed cool. him. Maybe he was like, what? You're so excited. What? This is amazing. <laughs> He, he had a story that he was working with Isabella Rossellini to try and get some decent vocals for her cover of Blue Velvet. And he'd, ne he'd known him, but this was the first time he'd really done something with him. And he met with her and they worked on it and they recorded it and they brought it over to David Lynch. And he was shooting like the last scene of the film that they were shooting. And he, he put on the earphones to listen to it and he said, Peachy Keen, that's the ticket. <laughs> Which is exactly what David Lynch would say. <laughs> Uh, well, it is time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. And this is what this means for the business and how it affects you. If you're an adult, you ain't going to the movie theaters to see things like, I don't know, She Said, or The Fablemans, or Tar, or Armageddon Time, or, or pretty much anything that isn't, uh, you know, somebody in tights. Avatar, the way of water. Yes, the New York Times had yet another obituary for movie going for adults. It's by Brooks Barnes, and it says films for adults just don't work anymore. And they're like, look, the problem is not quality. Reviews have been exceptional for a lot of these movies, though they began with Armageddon Time, which has been very poorly reviewed, so that wasn't a good choice. But yes, Tar and The Fablemans and She Said and Devotion and others have been getting good reviews, but they're just not clicking at the box office. They quote a consultant who says, people have grown comfortable watching these movies at home. So they're blaming the accessibility movies. But again, as we pointed earlier, people have been able to watch these movies at home for decades. People can say, I used to say I can wait nine months to see it on VHS, or I can wait six months and see it on DVD and Blu-ray, or I can wait till it comes to cable on HBO, or I can wait till I can watch it on demand, or now I can watch it when it comes to my streamer. That's not a new phenomenon. 
And they've been saying for 50 years that that will kill cinema. It didn't kill it before. And they're just saying, well, look, something's going on. People, Adults are not returning to the cinema. There are some success stories like Everything Everywhere All at Once and Elvis and Glass Onion. Though confusingly, think, again, first they... Look, they, mm-hmm. they also had a story that there are no more movie stars. I think, right. you know, it's, the sky is falling. You know, it's just, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. Right. They've always said that. And when they point to a success story, they, just as they said, well, they gotten great reviews like uh, Armageddon Time, which did not. And then they said, well, some are working great at the box office. And they pointed to The Woman King, which is not a good example because it costs $50 million to make and it's topped out at $92 million. Again, that does not mean this movie will lose people money. I think it'll be, it will pull it out by the end, but it's certainly not what you would point to as a box office success story. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Absolutely. Elvis. Yes, Glass Onion, uh, it could have been, and it certainly attracted an audience when it was available for a week. But uh, I just, why would something have fundamentally changed from 2019? I don't think everybody was trained to never leave their house again because there was a pandemic. I just don't buy it. I think, A, it's too soon to draw any conclusions. If we have three or four years where every adult film basically flops, you know, 90% of them, we can go, okay, now there's really a big problem here. Now there's enough evidence to say we got it. But I don't see why that would happen or change. And I do think for a lot of people who are older, the pandemic's not over. We've got a triple-demic, as they say in the news, of COVID and the flu and RSV. And it's really bad. Hospitals are filling up with children and old people. COVID now is really going to kill old people, most of all. If you're a healthy person, you're really vulnerable if you're much older because your immune system isn't as strong anymore. And so they have a much greater concern about going in public. Now, we know going to the movies, sitting in a theater and staring so like at a one screen. one of the safest things you can do because you're all facing the same one direction. Of the sa- one, and you're not usually talking that much. Even if you're laughing or whatever, it's a pretty damn safe thing to do. But I can understand why older people might hesitate to go back. But I think the more obvious thing is, A... There just isn't that steady stream of movies yet, right? And, and you You're know, thinking about going ask, to movies every week. Whenever I ask a movie theater operator, what is the best form of advertising? You know, you're always asking if if the studios advertising. Yeah. What is the best, most effective form of advertising? You know what they tell me? The trailers in front of the movie, not on YouTube, but the people watching a trailer in a movie theater are more destined to come to a movie. So. It, really? it, it's in other words, it's a self fulfilling. Not it's it's like a self feeding right. cycle. If you don't have movies, right. if they're the movie not theater, in the theater. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I I would also say, you know what? Then cut the the fifteen minutes of crap before the trailers. Start the commercials and the ads and that Nicole Kidman bit. Put that before you begin the trailers. If the movie's supposed to open at seven, let it begin the trailers at seven and have all that other junk start at six forty five. Because I don't want to watch that Nicole Kidman trailer for AMC anymore. It was horrible the first time. I don't want to watch ads. I don't want to watch TV commercials. And they're making that money, but they're making people sit there for 15 minutes watching junk before they even get to the trailers they're hoping to entice them to come back for. You want to show ads? Do it before the movie's supposed to start. And when the movie's supposed to start, sure, you can begin the trailers then. And I don't mind seeing five, six, or seven. But, you know... Put the ads before that so that you're not forcing people to say Because I always say, movies at 7, I show up at 7.20. I do it all the time because I don't want to sit through 20 minutes or half Especially an hour Especially now that ads. you can do reserve seating. And I'm happy to see trailers. If I knew the trailers were going to start at 7, I would be there at 7, popcorn in hand. Well, so, 
It's too soon to draw any conclusions. There's still health concerns out there, even though movie going looks like it's been pretty safe from the track record, much safer than a lot of other things you could do. And give us a steady stream of films. But are people staying at home because they've been trained selling to stay at home? They've been able to do that for 40, 50 years now, ever since the VCR was invented. So I don't buy it. I'm just saying movie going ain't dead. That's right, because it's time for the obits. And if you love the obits, blame Sperling. He's like, enough, enough. There's like 500 people here. You were gone for two weeks. I can't help it if people keep dying. They die more likely during the holidays. So we're just going to list the people, and I will focus in on one of them. Though I can't decide whether to do Stuart Margolin or the lesbian Pulp Fiction writer. I love the fact that you keep referring to her as the lesbian Pulp Fiction writer, not by her name. Well, I forget her name. It's, uh, it's, uh, I forget her name. It's Mary Jane is her first name, but I forget her last name. She wrote under like 17 pseudonyms. Fleetwood Mac singer Christine McVie obviously is dead. She died at the age of 79. Uh, she'd been short, sick for a brief time. It was a shock to everybody. Very sad. I never saw Fleetwood Mac. And with Buck, you know, Lindsay Buckingham out and her dead, I'll never be able to see that original lineup, original classic lineup. Uh, and speaking of music, Jim Stewart, the co-founder of Stax Records, an important, important uh, artist in terms of bringing people to attention. He's in the Rock and Roll of Fame. He is dead as well. Uh, actor Clarence Gilliard Jr., he dies at 66. A rare black actor who had two hit TV shows. God bless him. He was in Die Hard. Uh, he had a nice little role in Die Hard. He even it, it led to a commercial. And he was in Matlock, the last four seasons of that show. And then he starred alongside Chuck Norris in Walker, Texas Ranger. He was on every episode of that Saturday night staple. He went on to become a film and theater professor, but a, an important figure and a presence that you didn't get to see a lot of in TV. One of the most important people who died this week, who probably agrees with me that Jean Dillman is indeed one of the greatest films of all time, is Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker Julia Reichardt. She died at the age of 76. She's hugely important, mentored a lot of people, all sorts of great documentaries. And you can find them. Search for her name. You can find them on Netflix, HBO Max, and Criterion, as well as for rent, though not as many as you would like. And certainly the Oscar winner, The Last Truck. No, no that's not the, the that's not the win- Oscar winner. It's, uh, is it? Is that the Oscar winner? She, she, well, no, she, it's she the, did it's Growing the, uh, Up Female. She did Seeing Red. She did, um, she did the the last truck. It's uh, American was, Factory. Another one, the that American Factory, uh, which she did, which won the Oscar for yeah. a best documentary film. Bob McGrath from Sesame Street. No! He was the friendly music teacher. He died at the age of ninety. He got his big break doing uh, Sing Along with Mitch. That turned him into a big star in Japan. He had fan clubs in Japan from appearing and touring with Sing Along with Mitch because of this type of voice he had. And then he, he went on to Sesame Street and sang songs like Sing, Sing a Song, and The People in Your Neighborhood. He was he in one of my neighbors. Epi- I hate to say this. I know this. Oh! It's, it's going to sound silly. You know, won't you be yeah, my neighbor? Everybody's your neighbor. Yeah, no, he, he was a neighbor. Yeah, he, he you know, lived in Teaneck, New Jersey. And yeah, oh, I had no idea. Oh, I'm sorry about that. He did 130 episodes in the first season alone. Yeah, I know. 130 episodes. They ran out of letters pretty fast. They're like, (laughs) we better go to numbers. This episode brought to you by A again. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Emmy-winning actor Kirstie Alley of Cheers fame died at 71. She had the thankless task of replacing Shelley Long on the most acclaimed, one of the most popular shows uh, going around. Everything you could ask for, like who wants to fill those shoes, but... According to Mo, she did it and won Emmys of her own. Uh, producer and writer Derek Granger died at the age of 101, a major force in British television. He made the miniseries Brideshead Revisited happen, one of the most iconic, important TV miniseries of all time. 
I can still remember seeing it in college on VHS. I watched it over a long weekend when everyone was away. I'd never seen it. I watched every episode on Saturday and I saved the final episode for Sunday because I was exhausted and watched that last episode with tears streaming down my face practically. Very moving, very beautiful miniseries and he made that happen. Uh, Composer Angelo Badalamente died at 85, of course. Uh, And uh, Stuart Margolin, who appeared on... The Rockford Files with James Garner. He won two Emmys for that role. He directed a lot of TV. Cool guy. He had a choice. Do I do the Mary Tyler Moore show or do I do a show with James Garner? And he couldn't. It's 1970. And he said, all right. You know, these were new shows. And he said he had the choice, which is pretty rare for an actor. And he said, I'll do the Jim Garner show. Big mistake. Mary Tyler Moore show, one of the best shows of all time. The Jim Garner show was called Nichols and it died after a season. But... (laughs) James Garner liked him, and they put him on Rockford Files, and the rest is history. And finally, the writer, the lesbian pulp fiction writer, as I like to say, Mary Jane Meeker. She hated her name, Mary Jane. She died at the age of 95. Hugely important. When she was a kid, I love this story, she realized she had urges. Kind of like girls. And then she heard a news story as a teenager that some girls were expelled from a boarding school for lesbian activity. And without mentioning that fact, she told her parents, I really want to go to school there. <laughs> and they sent her there. She's like, that's the school for me. <laughs> and she went to school there and found out her suspicions were confirmed. Yes, yeah, she was one of them. Then she went to work for Gold Medal. Do you know them? Gold Medal, the imprint, the publishing imprint? No, they I just know Gold Medal, the, the flower. You know. Flower. Yeah. Gold Medal is a really important imprint. They published paperbacks, pulp paperbacks. They published all sorts of authors, giving them breaks. They were groundbreaking, innovative. They pushed the envelope. They did a lot of stuff. They were never respected by any stretch of the imagination, but by God, they sold copies. She went to work for them as an assistant, and she faked being her own agent so she could sell them a novel, and she did that. And then they're like, we need a novel with some lesbian theme. And so she wrote a lesbian-themed novel about scandal on a college campus. They called it Spring Fires, hoping to trick people who were looking for a James Mishner novel called Fires of Spring. They told her the ending had to be miserable because you couldn't let the lesbians, you know, not pay a price because otherwise the post office might refuse to ship the books or might seize them all. So they had to make the lesbians pay. So she wrote this horrible ending where the one girl decides she's actually straight and was never lesbian. The other girl is, you know, punished miserably. But that's okay. It was so groundbreaking. People were so excited by it. They were deluged with mail. It sold 1.5 million copies. It led to a string of lesbian fiction exploding on the market. Finally, stories were being told for women, always tawdry and downbeat and often getting negative endings, but stories were being heard for the first time. It was a massive and influential bestseller, but she went on to write all sorts of books, fiction, comedy, kids' books, young adult books, and even hard-boiled thrillers under a name that people assumed was a man, and they were so well-reviewed, people compared her to Patricia Highsmith, the lesbian thriller writer, who she ended up getting in a relationship with, and they were dating for two years. She wrote a book about that, and she just had the final burst of attention. If you see the new film, Loving Highsmith, you can hear her. She's one of the main talking heads talking about her relationship with Patricia Highsmith. So a huge, talented writer, groundbreaking in terms of lesbian fiction. And uh, she dated Patricia Highsmith, one of the great thriller writers of all time. So a fascinating career. And if you're interested and you've ever seen old paperbacks in a bookstore, and if it's gold medal, you know you got a winner on your hands. Well, uh, you know what? Uh, while you go do that, check out uh, some of her books from the library. 
Yeah, you can. Uh, was that quick enough for you? That was, you know, it's, uh, on, on you the know, it, was, it was okay. It was okay. All right, I mean, all right. You know, all right, sorry, I tried. Uh, well, you know what? Make make sure you subscribe to our show in any one of your favorite podcast aggregators to find out whether we are, you know, get rid of our obituary section, whether we kill off. Yeah, tell us, tell us if you want to. Yeah, let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can call and leave us a voicemail and yell and scream at us about our obituary section. 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Again, you can subscribe to our show in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can find uh, our program here uh, at Showbiz Sandbox. Box is our handle on Twitter. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page on Facebook. Again, all of this information, as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, can be found on our website, ShowbizSandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, WhoisMGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's I See Dead People. Dot com. That's a sixth cent. What? I don't know why we're referencing. You can say it. I don't know why. Because we're... it's obituaries. Oh, I get it. I get it. Well, you know what? If you can't find it. Why any... do you hate dead people, Sperling? What is your prejudice against dead people? You know what? That's going to be my, my website. Why do I hate dead people.com? Um, <laughs> you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage on that website, why not go to michaelgiltz.com where all of his entertainment news stories can be found. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.